peasant's turn Every branch of the tree has to Alright Now when I watched the lamb open one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a, pair, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wind, by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And yeah, all right. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who shall stand? When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and said, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on to the earth, threw it on the earth. And there were pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, last week we saw that there's a scroll with a plan that answers all of the problems of evil and suffering in this world, that, that God really does have an answer for those things. He's in control and the slain lamb is the one who's going to solve the problem. But almost everybody who sort of hears that teaching uh, has an understandable reaction. That is, if there's a solution to the problem, why do we still see the problem? If the problem is solved, why is it not solved? 
And there's something very important for us to learn tonight from this text, if you're going to be able to deal with that tension and learn to have faith in a world that is always dealing with evil and suffering. And that's that God's kingdom is here and it is not fully here yet. There's times uh, in the Gospels where Jesus says, uh, behold, the kingdom of God is here. And then there's other times that he speaks and says, when the kingdom comes, this will happen or this will be true. That there's this uh, perpetual teaching throughout the entire New Testament that you need to understand if you want to understand the Bible and you want to make sense of trying to be a Christian in this fallen world. That's that God's kingdom has come and one day we really want it to fully come. And we're going to explore that through a word in this text that's almost in every major portion through the book of Revelation. It brackets the whole book. It's this word come. Explores the idea God has come and he is still coming. And what this word will do is it sheds light for us on how God works in the world and how you and I can wisely be a part of it and what he's doing. So let's explore that tonight and learn how to fit in that world and have faith and steadfast heart and wisdom by looking at two things. What happens, one, when the kingdom comes, and two, how it comes. So first, what happens when it comes? So the vision uh, this week picks up uh, the lamb who is Jesus uh, has taken the scroll and he begins to break the seals that were shutting the scroll. And what you have here in the first several verses, the first four seals were introduced are what is commonly heard of as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, who are they and uh, what does this mean? Well, these are images that are drawn from Zechariah 1 and 6, and each represents something different. Uh, the first rider is white, and he's given a crow and a bow, a crown and a bow, uh, and, and this represents power. Uh, the second one is red, has a sword, and represents wars. Uh, wars that uh, have just destroyed cultures, destroyed people groups, devastated humanity. The third one is black and is mentions him trading money for food. And what this is, this represents economic devastation and poverty. And the fourth one mentioned is pale, and it represents what it says is death and Hades. Now, what do we make of all these images? What I want you to know at first is that this is not some future crazy ending to time where evil will suddenly sort of culminate and begin to rule the earth. Like these are actual figures who will come and do these in unprecedented ways. It's not that for sort of two quick reasons. One, John has been communicating over and over again throughout this entire letter that what he is seeing is present now. And so what he's sort of seeing is that these images of power, war, uh, greed and famine and death, these have been things that have been present since the beginning of the curse in Genesis 3 that they are swarming in our existence, they dominate what it means to live in this world, and they have been, in a sense, unleashed and let go to, to, uh, to sort of ruin our experience in this world. But also notice that each image is subservient to the lamb. It says that the, uh, the white rider is given a crown. Uh, the red rider is permitted to take peace from the world. 
And then the, the black writer, he's told to the end of verse five, do not harm the oil and the wine. And then the, and the fourth writer is told uh, that he is given authority over a fourth of the earth. So what is it then? What, what are these images sort of communicating to us? What we have is a depiction of the pain and suffering that is always characterizing life. And so that sort of uh, brings about a tension for us in what we've been seeing and learning in this book. And the tension is this. If God's kingdom has come, why does it so feel like it has not? That is, how do we resolve the idea that the kingdom has come and evil is so aggressively present? And how in the world are we asked in verse 11 what the martyrs are told to do, which is to wait a little longer? How in the world do those resolve? Well, to answer that, you have to sort of understand and see the twist in this text if you're going to learn to be wise and hold fast in this broken and dark world where the four horsemen really are still present. See, our instincts would assume that the presence of God's kingdom, if it's come, would be diminishing the presence and intensity of evil in this world. But we're actually being shown quite the opposite. It's that the closer that Christ's kingdom gets, and it can't get any closer than the culmination in Revelation 5, where the one who has conquered evil is taken the scroll. The closer it gets, evil actually does not diminish or go away, but it actually grows in intensity. And here's what we're learning. That aggressive evil in this world is not proof that Christ's kingdom is not here. It's actually proof that it is. I mean, in the 20th and 21st century alone, secularism has grown and it's grown alongside of the development of technology. And so many sociologists and authors with, and philosophers thought that with the, the presence of technology and the widespread growth of secularism and the diminishing of actually religion, what would happen is that more and more peace would come in this world. But here's the 20th and 21st century. It began with the Turks attempting genocide on the Armenians and killing 1.5 million people. And the 20th century ended with the 1990s having 10 million people being killed in war. I mean, the last 40 years, global poverty has sort of declined, but the gap between the wealthy and the poor has increased 30%. And those realities, what it's done to secularism has been massively discouraging for sociologists. And H.G. Wells uh, wrote at the beginning of his um, of his works, all this hope and this belief that the growth of secularism and, te and technology would actually do away with these problems. But his last book is called A Mind at the End of Its Tether, where he just thought humanity was done. See here, what's happened in the world has been truly devastating. And if you're a Christian, it's heartbreaking but it is actually not discouraging. Because the question, is evil winning the day with as present as we see it, even in our own present 21, uh, 2021? And what Revelation 6 says is no. It's actually just putting out its last threat. Let me explain. Um, Izzy's influence on me recently, so I started, I, I reread 
the first half of the Fellowship of the Ring the last couple mornings. And one of the things that I noticed about this that's so fascinating is when you get into Frodo's life, it, it's not hard to tell and one of the, how overwhelming the burdens are on him. How much the struggle is of bearing the ring uh, from the attacks of the orcs, from what he struggles with personally, uh, through everything thrown at him, it's getting heavier and heavier and heavier the closer he gets to Mordor. And here's what's interesting to think about. When you begin the book, Bilbo has the ring for 60 years and goes through none of these struggles. And then he gives it to Frodo for 17 years and there's none of these struggles. They don't go through anything that Frodo goes through on his journey to destroy the ring. Why? It's because when they had the ring and they were in the Shire, there was no plan to destroy the ring. And so the moment Frodo starts to take a step with the ring towards Mordor, here's what happens. Sauron realizes the days are numbered and he begins to throw everything that he has at Frodo and his fellowship. And evil begins to come in unprecedented ways upon them and all of Middle-earth. And it's not because they don't have a plan or a pursuit to destroy evil. It's because they do. And they're coming. And here's what John is communicating to us in Revelation 6. It's that the evil you see so vividly present in this world is not a sign that Jesus is not in control and he has not come. It's actually a sign that he is, and evil knows it, and is throwing out every last ditch effort to win. And you have to begin to grasp that, because the attempts for wisdom and steadfastness in this world are so easily tainted by what we see that's happening right in front of us. But remember, John's revelation is trying to pull back the curtain of our reality and see what is actually happening with the throne room and the world around us and how what Christ did is actually changing the world, even though we can't begin to see it. And you and I are invited into the mission to press back against the currents of this world and the daily moments of tragedy and the exhausting pain that, that we see. And if you're going to do it, you, you need to learn the hymn lyric that my wife so often says when we're watching the news. She says this all the time. Though the wrong is off so strong, God is the ruler yet. See, it's so tempting to look at the evil and think there's no hope. But what Revelation says is the evil is a sign that there is hope. And what you can't see right now is more true and more powerful than what is happening around us. Why? Because Christ is come and is coming. And the closer he comes, the more evil gets desperate. And that's why it's so pervasive. That's what happens when it comes. So secondly, though, if that's what happens when it comes and we need it to come to cleanse, how can it come? See, if you're going to be wise in a dark world where darkness is intensifying, you're going to have to know how to participate in how the kingdom comes. And one of the uh, literary themes throughout um, this section and across the book of Revelation is that as the last book of the Bible, what Revelation does so brilliantly 
is answer so many problems at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. So what you have in the book of Genesis, the very first thing are the seven days. What you have here are the problems that were introduced to the seven days sort of being dealt with in the seven seals. Genesis is creation and Revelation is recreation, a remaking of this world. And that's what we want. You know, I mean, every time somebody says something like, it's 2021, how are we still doing this thing? Like, how are we still struggling with racism? How are we still struggling with hate? How are we still struggling with all of these things that seem so obvious? And you know what? Every person that says that, no matter what they believe, deep down is saying, when will this world get back to the way it's supposed to be? And Revelation 4 through 6 is God's plan to that cry, saying, I'm making it back into the way it was meant to be. I'm recreating it, getting back to the creation. But what's the plan? Well, you know, with this COVID-19 thing that we're still dealing with, uh, we're all sort of in tune to what needs to be done. There was a vaccine that was made that's to solve the problem, but we now have this issue of getting the vaccine out. That is the thing that is going to heal, we need to distribute it. And what you have here in the rest of Revelation 6 and in Revelation 8 is that the lamb is the vaccine, but there's a distribution plan for the vaccine. And that's you and I. That's you and I participating in his coming and making sure his comingness comes quicker. And you know what? You can, uh, you can participate tonight in two ways. It's by what you can do and what can happen to you. A, what can you do? So the sixth seal, um, that's at the end of chapter six, uh, it brings us to the edge of creation in history. Uh, an earthquake and all the major figures of history are beginning to hide at the world's end. Uh, the world is sort of uh, giving in on itself. I mean, this is really instructive for how to think about how God's wrath works in the world. It's not as though God is up there like punching in on the world, saying, you will pay for turning your back on me. It's more like the world has just said, no, leave us alone. And so God does, and it actually crumbles in on itself. And so when it begins to crumble in on itself, we would expect the seventh seal to then immediately follow and everything to be resolved. But instead, what chapter seven gives, which we did not read, is this enormous worship service that's almost a split screen image that while the world is collapsing, those in, in Christ and the angels of heaven are in this amazing, wonderful worship service. And then chapter eight begins with this odd phrase, 30 minutes of silence. What in the world? There's a lot of debate on this, but I think uh, scholar Daryl Johnson, whose commentary I continue to go to, is right. He, he notes in this one rabbinical document that somebody wrote and was commenting on in the first century. He says that, that the angels are, are believed to sing at night, but be silent during the day. Why? It's so that during the day, God can hear the prayers of his people. See, he, here's what's happening with the shaking of the earth 
and the seventh seal in the worship service. It's that what shakes the world and what causes the world to not work and healing to finally fully begin to come and the kingdom to really come and ridded the world of evil are the prayers of Christians. Now, most of us sort of find prayer boring, confusing, uh, maybe useful at moments where it's like, Lord, please help me on this test I did not study for. Uh, please, please make this work. But I wonder if you've ever thought what this text is saying about prayer. Because here you're being told that the earthquake and the undoing of evil is coming through the prayers of the saints. Jacques Ellul, uh, professor of law at University of Bordeaux, he put it this way. The Christian who prays acts more effectively and decisively on society than the person who is politically involved. It is how we invert our instinctive cultural hierarchy of values. See, the kingdom is coming, and every time it comes closer, evil rages. And you know how you can participate in walking closer to Mordor and destroying the evil is that you can begin to pray against it. See, the evil is going to be destroyed not through swords, but by being on our knees and saying, thy kingdom come. And you know what this tells us? Prayerlessness, you know what it does? Is it gives evil a break. Because every time you pray, you are threatening it more and more and more to know its days are numbered. That's what you can do, but B, the other way you can participate in bringing healing is by something happening to you. See, the most chilling moment in this passage is in verse nine when the fifth seal is open. And John says, I saw under the altar. Now the altar there is uh, the priestly altar where sacrifices were and underneath would have been where the, the sacrifice was laid. It says the blood of those who have been slain for the word of God. He's talking about those who have died living for the kingdom of God. And all of these people, they say, how long, O Lord, before you judge this world by what's happened to us. And, and there's a couple things that are really peculiar here. See, if God is on the throne and in control, why has this happened to people who are living for that very thing? For the people who want to see the kingdom come, why is the evil doing this to them? And if God is on the throne and in control, why is this injustice allowed to continue on? Here's why. Because it's not just that God is going to end suffering and overthrow evil and their ability to ever dish out suffering. It's that the way he's going to do that is actually through our suffering. See, the kingdom comes and heals but it won't fully come and heal until there are enough who have lived as like the slain lamb. Man, as an American and USC student, how much that presses up against us. Because there's a lot of moments in life where you escape suffering or you don't have to face it. And we almost immediately, immediately attribute this to God's goodness. 
And, I, and I'm not saying we should never do that. It, it's not less than that. But the danger is then that we think of suffering and hard moments and brutal attacks by evil in this world as God abandoning us or even not having meaning us or meaning for us in our lives. But what this text is saying is that when suffering happens, especially unto death for the kingdom of God, what's happening is that it is bringing this world into the front door of the kingdom of God. See, suffering, it does the exact opposite to Christians, what evil originally intended it for, so that it can be said, the darker the night, the brighter the star will actually get. There's a fascinating place in Luke 21, where Jesus, he says this, some of you, somebody who is disciples are going to be delivered up even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will even put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. I mean, what in the world? He says, uh, you're going to be killed, but nothing will happen to you. You're going to be hurt, but never harmed. How can he say this? Look, there's a you, and then there's a real you. And the you that you mostly walk around with that's built on something in this world, here's what you need to realize. It's threatened every day by suffering. Because what suffering can do is it can take away the very thing that you're building your life upon. But Jesus says, if you build your life on him and you will build it on the kingdom of God, all suffering can do is actually sink you deeper into him and bring his kingdom more. I mean, I want you to see the genius in this and how God's plan works in the world because of what it will do for your hope. The more evil throws at you if you're a Christian, and attempts in its attempt to pull you away from God. In the greatest power of wisdom and wisdom that God has, all of that evil can do, and the suffering that it issues out will it just sink you deeper into God and actually begin to destroy the evil that's throwing the suffering at you. You, you know why this is? Because the place where God ultimately destroys evil and actually brings us in into fellowship with himself and ushers in his kingdom is at the suffering of Christ on the cross for you. And he both does that for you and calls you into that. And let me apply this for us very quickly. I want you to stop running from suffering and fighting so much against it in your life and rather learn how to process it well. This really is going to be one of the key questions for you in life and the most vivid way to bring Christ's kingdom into this world. And it can be the most powerful spiritual experience of your life. It is not for you to decide whether or not suffering comes your way. It's only to you with what you do with it. The other week, I got a phone call from a man I, I barely know. His name was Philip. I recognized his name, but we have almost no relationship. And he called me out of the blue just to encourage me, just to tell me things I needed to hear, just to keep me going, 
just to reframe my perspective. So I asked him, I said, well, what's going on with you, Philip? Tell me about your life. And so when I asked him, he began to uh, reluctantly share with me how cancer has just overwhelmed his life and has taken over his body. He's gone through 31 rounds of chemo in the last year and a half. And most days now, he can't even get out of the bed. He began to cry and share tears about how lonely he's felt and how far away he's felt from his children and what he's missing out on his kid's life and how little time he actually can be alert and awake for his wife. But he also said that in the strangest of ways, the last 15 months have been the most joyful of his life. And what I began to realize in this most astonishing way is that suffering is doing the opposite to him of what we expected it to do. See, it's not pulling him further away from Christ, and it's not preventing the kingdom of coming here. It's actually drawing him closer to God, and it actually drew me closer to God, and actually empowered me in the most mysterious way to want to see the world the way God actually sees it and throw off everything that is so foolish that I want to build my life on and follow him. And I don't think I've ever been more compelled in the last year to live for the kingdom than I was in the moments where Philip talked to me. We press back on our knees and in suffering. And in those moments, the Lord is truly coming and evil is on his heels throwing out its last-ditch efforts. If prayer and suffering are a struggle, it's likely not that you're far from God, but actually nearer to his kingdom than you know. And evil is doing everything it can in its last moments. The Lord is coming. Who of you will suffer for him to come sooner? It sounds so much like a threat to our worldly ears, but in the gospel, in the kingdom, you can consider that an invitation. Amen.